Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you and welcome. If you like what you hear, then please hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, if you want to donate to this channel, there's a link in the description of the episode that will take you to the corresponding page. A small monthly donation equal to a convenience store snack will help us to up our production value as well as allow us to do some new spinoffs on the channel. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page where we interact with all of you and talk about other things going on in the music world. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into the real stuff. Well, Justin, we've hit uh, an incredible milestone with this episode. And that's that we have now hit 10,000 total listens. My goodness that is a lot of listens and um we are just so 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 grateful to everyone that has um listened to our episodes and has subscribed and shared and we are just so so thankful that we have hit this really big milestone now this is total listens correct yes uh uh-huh so just combining all of the listens from every episode we've made up to this point which were at uh 22 i think wow so, keeping this all in account, what is our number one listen to episode? That is still definitely Coldplay. Wow! Just continuing to um, continuing to knock it out of the park. It is getting close to the three thousand mark. That's incredible. And we've had other episodes that have done really well, and I'm looking forward to uh, just getting some more listens and to continue to grow it. Now I'm curious, what is the least how would you word this? What is the worst performing episode? That is still uh, our Beatles episode, oh, which is no. so shocking. It is right now, last I checked, sitting at 99 <laughs> listens, and it's our fifth oldest episode. Oh, my goodness. Which is just crazy to me because, like, everyone loves the Beatles, and there's so much to dig in with them. And it's really where everything starts. Yeah, the most influential band of all time. So it's interesting that that one, by and far, um, even episodes within their first week, these new ones that we listened, like, past the Beatles' total listens in, like, the first week or so. Man, that's crazy. But, you know, that just means that it's uh, more people have the opportunity to go discover it later on. Today we are talking about a legendary band of the 70s and 80s, and that band is Lucas. Rush, a band that I desperately hope will have a comeback tour as well, but I don't <laughs> think will, it, it will ever happen. Now, you have to understand, our listeners, that Rush is extremely important to Lucas, and that reason is... They are one of my four pillars, the last of the four pillars for us to talk about. Now, if you have never heard us talking about the four pillars. Lucas, just give us a brief description of what that is. So for me, coming up with like what I would say my top five favorite bands are, I can always come up with four, but the fifth one is like always in flux. Depends on my mood and the time of year and just who I'm listening to at the time. But those four bands, all of them have my favorite uh, player of that instrument or singer of all time. And so they each make what I call just the four pillars of my musical taste and my musical proclivities. So Queen having Freddie Mercury, my favorite singer, um, Iron Maiden having Steve Harris, my favorite bass player, Pink Floyd having David Gilmore, my favorite guitar player. And now we're talking about Rush, which has Neil Peart, my favorite drummer. And now when you're talking about Rush, Neil Peart definitely is probably a big part of the band, but there are others. Yes. Course. So Rush is a power trio, which means that there's only three guys in the band. Um, power trios are really hard to pull off because it means that every member of the band has to provide such an essential ingredient. Like you can't have anyone that's expendable in your power trio. Um, it's made it to where some of the biggest bands of all time have been power trios, like The Police, Jimi Hendrix Band, um, Motorhead, Cream, um, Muse. But in my opinion, Rush was the greatest of the power trios. So the other members of the band is Geddy Lee, who is the bass player 
He's the lead vocalist, and he's the keyboard player. Which, just like you said, in power trios, everyone has to bring some magic sauce, and Geddy Lee, of course, does that. Yes. I say that he plays bass, sings, and plays keyboards, but I also need to mention that he can do all three of those at the exact same time. Now, is this a part of the reason why you say that Rush is the best of the power trios? I think so. I mean, their level of musicianship is among the greatest of all time. Like Getty, Getty Lee is one of the greatest bass players to ever pick up the instrument. Neil Peart is one of the greatest drummers to ever sit behind, if maybe not the greatest. Um, and Alex Lifeson, who's the guitar player, he's also one of the greatest and most innovative guitar players to ever live. And so putting that level of skill together amongst three people and the truly incredible music that they made and how they defied all of the odds and all of the rules and all of the norms that were set before them to become this band that never fit anywhere but like literally just shouldered and made their own place. It's just it's one of the coolest stories in rock and roll. And they're a Canadian band. Yeah, so we're um, getting our first uh, flavor from north of the territories. So this is our first Canadian band to get to talk about. They're definitely the, uh, I would say, the most successful and the most popular of the Canadian bands. Now, I think the thing that you told me about Rush and why they've been so popular over the years is because over the course of time, they've always managed to stay relevant to culture. Yes, they're, they've been able to adapt so well over the years. They always kind of were able to pivot, and not every pivot was great, even though all of the pivots were good, but they were able to do it enough to where they never uh, faded away or became uh, archaic or out of time. So, like, they were doing their own thing in the 70s. They embraced technology, the synths, and everything in the 80s. Um, really latched on to the new wave scene. Saw what was going on with all the synth pop in the 80s and really incorporated their own style into it. In the 90s, they were able to follow the grunge movement and heavy up their sound and really kind of get all of the 90s angst in their guitars and their drums and the bass and the vocals and the lyrics. They were able to make that shift. And then when they got to the 2000s, they once again just kind of started doing whatever they wanted. And that's kind of why they were able to just go out on top. And this, for the same reason, this is also why they've had the same lineup for nearly 40 years, right? Yes, there's only ever been one lineup change in the band. And that was um, their original drummer, John Rutsey, who played on the very first album, which was their self-titled record. Um, and then he left during the tour of that first record, and that's when Neil Peart came in and was the drummer from that point onward. And same three guys. I mean, there's once Neil Peart came in, all three of the band members were um, were not expendable. Like, you could never replace any of those three because they just brought something so vital and so unique to the band. And so when Neil Peart decided in 2015 that he was done, like, the band said, we're done too. Now, when you're talking about Rush, you also have to talk about John Rutsey. Yeah, so a lot of people don't talk about John Rutsey, and I wanted to make special note to bring him up because he was such an important member of that that early stage of their career. Um, he was their childhood friend, their schoolmate. Like these these three guys made their first album when they were 18 years old. Wow. Uh, dropped out of high school. They didn't even finish their senior year. Um, they were somehow able to convince their parents that this whole rock and roll thing would work out. <laughs> and thankfully it did. Um, but... John Rutsey really was able to anchor Getty and Alex when they were still kind of trying to figure out who they were as musicians. You listen to that first Rush record, and it doesn't sound anything like what they would turn into, even by the second record. Um, they almost sounded like a um, like a knockoff of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And just really had a strong blues 
aspect to their sound. Which would make sense, especially once we start talking about some of these songs that we picked. Yeah. But John Rutsey, he he was a vital member, and he was a really good drummer. The reason he wasn't able to stick around with the band was because he had severe diabetes. Mm. And life on the road at that time... Um, they were very concerned about his health and they were really fearful that if he went on the road, he could die just because he wouldn't have access. And, you know, being 18, you know, he wouldn't be able to control himself to not, you know, drink too much, not just eat whatever he wanted. He wasn't a responsible adult. I mean, no one really is at the age of 18. <laughs> no. And so, you know, it was his decision to bow out of the band. He never got kicked out. They never, you know, said, well, be gone. We, we're going to get this better drummer and we'll forget all about you. Um, and just everyone always talks about those three core members, and they rightly should. But I just wanted to to talk a little bit about Rutsey's involvement because he really makes that whole first album work. I think that... You know, they, the other two members were still trying to figure out, you know, how they were going to play and what their influences were. And um, Rutsey was the glue that held that first album together. So they have some early success then with this first album. Yeah, that first album got pretty big in Cleveland, mainly off of the success of the song Working Man. And um, they had a lot of high expectations for the second album, Fly By Night, and they sort of met them, and they were this really promising band. Like, everyone was kind of pegging them as the next Led Zeppelin. You know, there were these young guys with these bright features ahead of them until their third album, Caress of Steel, came out and just completely tanked all of their hopes and dreams. And why is that? Because it's a really difficult progressive record. A lot of people say it's one of their worst records. I actually really like it. In fact, I even have a t-shirt with that album art on it. Um, I think that it's a really underrated record, but also at the same time, it's them really trying to figure out how to be a progressive rock band. Like they're writing 20 minute long songs. They're um, just doing a lot of left field stuff. And the record executives were really pissed off at them saying like, no, we want you to write hits. We want you to write more songs like Working Man and Fly By Night. And um, Neil Peart, who had become the lyricist by that point, was so adamant that he was not going to do what other people told him to do. And was just like, okay, we've got one more chance to make a record and we're going to make it on our terms. We're going to make the best prog rock album we can make. And if it fails, we're totally fine going back to our normal jobs working in hardware stores and, <laughs> you know, just, you know, living back the normal life. And so they just, they literally were all in on this fourth record, 2112, and that ended up being the record that broke them in a good way. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, it became this huge cult phenomenon record like it didn't get on the radio but at the same time the word of mouth was so strong on this album of all it appealed to musicians like Kirk Hammett from Metallica said that that was one of the albums that inspired him to pick up the guitar wow um you know it was this hugely influential record with musicians because they all saw them as wow these guys are masters of their craft and they were incredible storytellers and from that point on rush became the leading figures of the prog rock movement which had pretty much died by that point because that came out in 1976 wow so that came out in the right as punk was starting to yeah. come up so like the first wave of prog rock came like from 69 to 74 75 maybe and then it started to die off because all of those bands were running out of creative energy. Uh, the style just wasn't as successful anymore. And uh, Rush were kind of the ones that that took what the first wave did and brought it into the future. They brought the heaviness to Prague for the first time. They brought a, um, a tight sound to Prague Rock. Uh, Prague Rock was very loose. It was very jazz 
influenced, and uh, Rush just brought this metallic sense to it. Like it was almost pre-heavy metal, even though heavy metal was still at around at that time. It was in its early stages. Like Rush, a lot of times is considered an early metal band, especially in the early days. Yeah, I think in some of the songs that we're going to listen to, you can definitely hear, especially the tone of a lot of their instruments, it's definitely a lot heavier than you would have expected for that time period. Yes. And so throughout the rest of the 70s, they were just this unstoppable prog rock group, just writing these incredible songs, um, really dense philosophy and storytelling, And then they hit the 80s, and they decided they just wanted to simplify what they were doing. And that's when they hit their creative high point with the albums um, Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures. That always seems to happen. Like, I just remember when we talked about Metallica even, like, when, or even Judas Priest, like, when the band finally kind of comes around and decides, okay, we're going to stay true to who we are, but we're just going to simplify our stuff and make it a little bit more radio-friendly. All of a sudden, it just blows up. Yeah, and this is when they were getting on the radio, and they had their biggest radio hits. And so, um, yeah, that's, I would say, Permanent Ways, Moving Pictures, and Signals was kind of like them, like, sitting at the top. And they were able to finally move from the underground into the mainstream, even though the mainstream still didn't accept them, mainly because they were, like, unabashedly nerdy Mm. like they were never pop stars they never you know none of them were particularly very handsome they were these weird looking dudes with long hair singing about you know dragons and you know black holes and uh, and singing about you know the life of the outcasts and so those were the people that gravitated towards their music. They always used to joke that you would never see a girl at a Rush concert. <laughs> it was all like, um, you know, teenage geeks and middle-aged uh, bald dudes. <laughs> but they have one of the most rabid fan bases in the whole world. Their fans are just so, they're so rabid, they're so diehard, they would give everything for this band and that's where I feel about them I got to see them live twice and both of those shows were just incredible experiences that I'll never forget Um, there's just a real sense of community among their fans because everyone that's a Rush fan kind of knows in some way that they don't completely fit in with society they're the geeks the nerds the, um, the weirdos and it's kind of like Rush is a band full of geeks and weirdos. <laughs> like, Neil Peart is, like, the nerdiest, dorkiest dude probably in all of music. Um, very introverted, very um, awkward. Just all he does is read. Like, the band just reads books all the time. Like, when in their early days, they were opening for Kiss. And Gene Simmons was just like, wondering why they wouldn't go out and party with them after the concert. <laughs> and he's just like, what are these guys doing? And they, he said that they would just be sitting in their hotel room reading books while Kiss was going out and, you know, getting girls and drinking and partying. It's just like Rush never did that. Crazy. They just always had this integrity about them that they were just like, we're going to be normal people that just so happen to be in a rock group. <laughs> I love that. Which is exactly how I would want to be if I was a professional musician. I would just, after every show, just go in my hotel room, get out a nice book, and decompress. Well, there you have it, everybody. That is Rush in a nutshell. But we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the six songs that we've picked to represent Rush. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. Today we are talking about 
Rush, and we've got six songs for you. And if you've never listened to this podcast before, Lucas, tell our listeners why we have six songs. So the purpose of these six songs is to uh, give us an opportunity to talk a little bit deeper and give some more specific things about the band, but also to give you a soundtrack to um, what this band is all about. I wanted to pick six songs that would, if you've never listened to Rush before, you would have a really great understanding of who this band is, at least at an intro level. I don't want to include any really difficult songs or songs that are hard to grasp, but like introductory songs for the band. But I also want to pick six songs that have a significant emotional arc from start to finish. So um, I'm not just picking the six best songs or the six most popular songs. I'm picking six songs that introduce you to the band while also creating an arc from beginning to end. So if you've never listened to these songs before, in the description of the episode is a link to a Spotify playlist that has these songs on there. Please go listen to them. Um, Even if you have heard these songs before, still go listen to them in this order. You might feel something new or hear something new that you've never heard before. Whether you want to listen to those songs before you listen to this episode or after is up to you. But that's the purpose of these songs. Well, there you have it. And let's get into our first song, and that is Tom Sawyer from the 1981 album Moving Pictures. Yes, probably the most recognizable Rush song out there. It's actually my ringtone right now. (laughs) The thing I like about this song so much is that you can definitely tell um, Rush's prog era background, Mm -hmm. but you can tell that the age of the synth is about to take over. Oh, yeah. They had been fiddling with synths for a couple albums up to this point, but this is definitely the most synth-heavy song that they had made up to this point. Like, it pretty much is the entire texture of that opening section. I mean, just hearing that 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 synth, like the... Yeah. Like, that's iconic. I think the thing people need to know is that, you're right, like, since we're not a new thing for Rush, like especially towards the end of the 70s, but the 80s really kind of let them bring it to the foreground instead of being this background instrument. Yes. Um, Getty Lee just loved the keyboards. He was really the one that steered the band in this musical direction um, because the way that they would break up their songwriting is Neil Peart would write all the lyrics, but then Getty and Alex would go off on their own and write all the music they would come back and kind of go, okay, let's try and see what lyrics fit with what music. And so Getty was the one that really pushed for more and more um, keyboards just because as a songwriter, he felt that he was just, a, it was a lot more fulfilling than writing on a bass guitar. That he could, you know, work with chords and different sounds. And he was the innovator of the band to um, really push in that direction. Now, we've talked a lot about Pert and we've talked a lot about Getty Lee, but. We need to talk about Lifeson as well because oh, his yeah. guitar work in this song, especially in the verses, is so fantastic. Yes. Alex Lifeson tends to be the one of the three that kind of gets left out a little bit, but there's no other guitar player that ever could have been in this band. He is just – he is so important and not only as a songwriter but just the way that he crafts his lines like that. That verse riff, that ba da like that's just – Absolutely brilliant. It's so simple yet so powerful. He always had a way of making his guitar really powerful sounding. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about Rush is that, especially during this era, they never really got rid of their progressive rock like feel. Yeah. Like they still managed to combine the two, like in every song that they've ever done. It's just like you can always tell, like, oh man, like this is where Rush has always been. Yeah. It helped them so much that they were so hardcore prog rock before this, that they were, they, it was so much a part of them and they had done it so much that when they started writing pop songs, they were able to just incorporate all of these progressive nuances in ways that never felt forced, that never felt like, Oh wait, hold on this. They're adding something weird in here. It was always felt natural. Like when they go to that seven, eight section, in the middle of the song, Mm -hmm. you don't even realize that they've changed time signatures. It just like when you start to listen to it, you go, wait a minute, hold on. But 
like on your first listen, it doesn't sound like they're like forcing in extra beats like a normal band would if they tried to put a 7-8 signature in the song. And it's just they were they do it so naturally. I heard someone say that they could use time signatures at will, that it was just nothing for them. I really love that instrumental that we're talking about here. Mostly because I love that bass line that Getty keeps going on and how like the guitars and the drums really match up with him before mm-hmm. they get back into that verse guitar melody again. Yes. Um, and then, of course, we have to talk about the iconic drum solo yes. at the end of the instrumental section. One of the most famous uh, drum pieces ever written. I can't tell you the number of people that have um, banged this out on their steering wheel while while sitting in traffic. It's like the go-to with along with in the air tonight is like the ultimate air drum moment. Yeah, I was going to say this song really highlights Pert just as a drummer because and honestly if you listen to every and honestly if you listen to any of their songs, there are so many incredible drum fills, little nuances, little beats that he does that just really kind of make him stand out. Yeah. Uh, but th- there's something about Tom Sawyer that just like that was one of his signature pieces. And he has said that it's his favorite song to play live because he said that it's so difficult that he always feels really good when he pulls it off every time he plays it (laughs) because it just takes a lot of concentration. All right, that gets us into our next song, Free Will. Yes, so this is where I really wanted to talk about Rush's lyricism, Neil Peart's lyricism. Now, quick question. I'm surprised that we go back a year. Yes, we do. So we go to uh, the previous year's 1980 uh, Permanent Waves, which was like their first step in a progressive route. This was like the first album where they were simplifying what they were doing and really crafting songs to um, more of a radio uh, audience. So yeah, this song became one of the iconic songs in Rush's career. And the lyrics in the song is what really pulls me in because Neil Peart has a very, very specific and very interesting way that he looks at life. And what is that? It's that uh, he is an atheist, but he always presents it in a way to where he's not saying that religion is bad, but rather he, like for instance in Free Will, he's just against being out of control. And the whole point of the song is that, you know, there are so many people in so many different religions that have the idea of we have no control, you know, anything bad that happens to us is because fate decided it must be. And the whole point of his song of Free Will is that he's saying, no, ultimately I choose my own destiny. I make my own way. And I think that to a certain degree, he's right. I don't think that You know, we all should take everything in our lives as something that, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I just got to accept it. Right. You know, I think that he does have a good thing to say. Like, I would say my favorite Rush lyric and maybe my favorite line in all of music is in the chorus when he says, um, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Like, I love that line. It's so Mm. clever. Yeah, it is really clever. Instrumentally, I, again talking about Rush's prog rock background I mean I love the break in the chorus when they when he ends with and I will choose free will Mm -hmm. like this song is just so much fun the chorus especially like it's so catchy I love how it kind of switches gears once it gets into it Uh and then you have those breaks and it's just so much fun to sing along with yeah I remember um explaining to some students before when I was teaching time signatures I brought up this song as an example about like you listen to like the verses and in the intro where they're doing the like there's actually so many funky time signatures mm-hmm. moving throughout it, but like you don't feel it. They do it so naturally to where it feels like it's supposed to be that way. And I think that this song is such a good example of the fact that they could just again use time signatures at will. It they could do uh, sections of four, four, six, four, seven, eight, and just make it all sound natural. And then, yeah, come in with the four, four chorus uh, whenever they need to to kind of anchor everything together. 
And then the instrumental section is just mind-blowing in this song. This is just a real classic prog rock instrumental here. Yeah, the drums are going off. Uh, Getty Lee is just hammering away at the strings (laughs) on the bass. And then Alex Lifeson just destroys it with the guitar solo. And then they have this incredible transition to slow down. I know, yeah. And get back into that pre-chorus melody, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, this is is a really great song. And it's uh, one that they usually play at just about every show that they do. It's kind of become a fan favorite. I think this song also really highlights just like how good of a power trio they are because there's so much like depth and I don't want to say noise, but like there's so much sound that's happening between the three of them that you just kind of forget that there's only three guys. Like, especially it's really key in the verses and the choruses where like the guitars really like because they're following the melody. It really just sounds like there's another voice in there. Mm-hmm. And this is where Getty Lee's bass playing really is so important because he can play it in such a way that he's able to fill up so much space. Yes. He's not just a bass player. He's, you know, between the tone and the melodic way that he plays and where he puts his fills, where he hangs it back. Like, he really helps to fill the void where another guitar player would be. And, you know, again, this is the beauty of a power trio is you've got these players that are able to to fill up that space. All right, that gets us into our next song, Limelight, which takes us back to moving pictures. Yes, this is going to be the most represented album in this song list because, I mean, moving pictures is the best album to start with if you've never listened to Rush. It's kind of like their, it's their classic record. And Limelight is one of the central songs of that album. This song is a look into Neil Peart's mind as far as fame and stardom. He is such a painfully awkward and shy person. Like, he won't even do the meet and greets. Mm. Like, he doesn't even travel with the band. Interesting. He, like, every, the band, obviously he'll travel with them if they need to fly overseas. But whenever, like, say they're doing a U.S. or a Canadian tour, he, instead of flying, drives on his motorcycle. everywhere and just shows up like an hour before the show starts (laughs) okay because he likes his alone time he likes to you know see nature he doesn't go on the bus or drive in the car with everyone he literally just kind of lives in his own world he hates the limelight he stays away from it as much as he can the line in there that says i can't pretend that a stranger is a long-awaited friend like that's neil pert right there I really love how poppy this song feels. Yes. And just shows that they were great pop songwriters. Yes, for sure. That's always the thing that I go back to with these bands of just, you know, that did all these incredibly innovative and weird things, but like at the core, they knew how to write great pop songs. And that's really the key for, as we've seen like with so many bands, it's like you can be so good instrumentally, so good as musicians, but... If you can't write something that's so catchy, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, like, that opening guitar line, that's like, that's a guitar line that sticks with you. Yeah, for sure. That's so well written. And the breaks without the whole song are just so fun. Because mm-hmm. it really kind of just breaks up, like, the monotony of just, like, what you would think of just as a regular pop song. Yeah, like uh, the transition to the the down chorus, mm-hmm. or you know, I th- I think is a really good job of kind of showing the um, the inherent sadness and the heaviness of fame. Just kind of how you know when you're away from it, it's just kind of like brings you to this softer place. And then how about the ending? <laughs> yes. Oh, man, what a trash can ending. Neil Peart just absolutely unleashes on the kit at the end of that song. And I feel like in some ways this song is kind of like the journey of like from the beginning of a show to the end. Like almost maybe like Peart's kind of his own how he feels like from coming into a show and then like at the end of the show it's like this big, big crescendo. Huh, that's an interesting perspective. I had never thought of that before. All right, that gets us into our next song, Fly By Night. So now we're going way back to Rush's second album. This was one of their early hits. Um, These were the kinds of songs that the radio 
people were were counting on them for because like this is a radio you're talking about song. when for their third album right yeah like whenever like the second album is the first one they had Neil Peart on mm-hmm. and he immediately was showing his influence as far as songwriting and arranging and just what style they were going to be Fly by Night is kind of an interesting mix of they have their progressive epics on there, but they also have these radio-friendly rock songs. Yeah, it's very bluesy. Yeah, that bluesy feeling definitely carries over from the influence on that first record. There's a lot of songs on on this album that could have fit on that first album, but they've got, you know, a very different drummer behind the kit. And this song was written by Neil Peart and just about, you know, going off on the road for the very first time, the excitement of a new adventure and leaving your hometown and kind of almost like your life is beginning again. Now, I have to say this because I think there are some other people who probably would agree with me, but as good and as well-written as this song, for me, this unfortunately is an example of uh, Getty Lee's vocals that I'm not a fan of. This was a song when I heard it for the first time, I was just like, I don't like this (laughs) because his voice sounds very different in this early stage. He sings very, very high for their first probably six albums. And then when Permanent Waves comes in is when he really consistently sings in the lower register in his mid register. Um, But it's one of those voices that the more I hear it, the more it grows on me. It's kind of like, you know, it's it takes a couple of listens for you to to get past the uh the high pitch uh whine of it. But I I really like how his voice sounds on this song now, but I will agree that the first time I heard it, I was just like, I don't like this song. His voice sounds too weird. And uh the critics have not been very nice to his voice over <laughs> the years. Like when they were first coming into popularity like People used to say that he sounded like a cat in a blender. Oh, my goodness. And um, a mouse that just got its tail stepped on and just really, really, um, really mean stuff. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's an acquired taste. All right. This takes us into probably one of the most interesting songs that they've ever done, and that is YYZ. Or YYZ, as you would say if you were Canadian. Of course. So YYZ is the first Rush song that I ever heard, being on the game Guitar Hero 2. Which kind of works out because it is, which works out because it's entirely instrumental. Yes. Um, The reason this song is called YYZ is because the pattern that they play at the beginning is Morse code for the letters YYZ. Wow. And the reason why they picked the letters YYZ is because that is the... um, the airport code for the Toronto airport, like how you have JFK mm-hmm. and LAX. Um, that was the Toronto airport code was YYZ. So Neil Pert was in the airport coming home and he heard from the cockpit, the Morse code from the um, signal tower going, bum, 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 and he just kind of got that rhythm stuck in his head and brought it to the band and was just like, hey, I've got this rhythm. Let's see if we can turn this <laughs> oh into something. Oh my goodness. And the song was never meant to be an actual song. It ended up just kind of being a jam session between the three members. And they loved it so much, they were like, we need to make this one of the songs on the record. And this song is just a freaking showcase. Like, they're just showing off at this point, and it's so incredible. I agree. I mean, if there's any song that highlights Russia's musicianship and talent, It's this song. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to have it on the list. I wanted to have a song where, like, the instruments are right up at the front and you truly see that these people are among the best alive at their instruments. Like, Getty Lee's bass playing throughout the whole thing is monstrous. And the bass breaks, the little drum and bass battle that they have in the middle. Yes. So good. Yeah, I just love that guitar melody before they go to the double time. Mm Mm-hmm. And then once they do, Getty Lee is just going for it. Yeah. He goes for it the entire song. It's you. It's really good that you can hear it really well in the mix. I was going to say, one of the things that I really love about this song is, like, you almost have throughout the song, like, different parts where each instrument is highlighted more than 
ever. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's given its own personal space to like, okay, you do your thing. Okay, now you do your thing. And I just, I think that's so cool. Yeah. Like, what benefits Rush so much is that Alex Lifeson doesn't have to like double track any guitar chords that are playing underneath yes. his lead lines because Getty Lee's bass playing is just able to carry all of that, all of that bottom pressure. Yeah, I was going to say one thing that I think Getty Lee does really well as a bassist is that he covers a lot of parts that normally you would have a rhythm guitarist cover. Mm-hmm. And like he's always carrying that melody every time he plays. Yeah. And so, yeah, this this song is just an absolute just shred piece. And um, in a lot of their concerts, this would be the uh, point where Neil Peart would do these extended drum solos. Listen to the version of this song from their Exit Stage Left live record, and Neil Peart goes into like a four-minute extended drum solo. <laughs> it's absolutely magnificent. I think the thing that I love most about the song is the addition of the synth that comes in. And it really, for me, I mean, just because I love synth sounds, it really just highlights, like, what a good synth can do, like, and what it can bring to a song. Yeah. Like, you have all this incredible energy with the drums, the guitars, and the bass, and all of a sudden this synth comes in, and it's just, like changes the entire emotion completely oh yeah when it comes in after that guitar break Mm -hmm. and it just it completely washes over the song and i mean the whole point of the song is coming home because that's where neil pert got the inspiration was he was on an airplane coming home and so that was kind of the mood they were trying to capture with this song and i feel like the synth part is the probably the part that best describes that it's just you know it's the warm feeling of returning to your homeland. All right, then last but not least is the song that really kind of put them on the map, and that is Working Man. Yes, the song that um, launched Rush's career. So they were a Canadian band. Canadian bands at that point had not really broken into America with a couple of exceptions, but not in the way to where it was very easy. And... um, there just happened to be this radio station in Cleveland that um, became obsessed with their song Working Man. She described it as a, a perfect uh, bathroom song <laughs> that if you needed to go to the bathroom, you could come back and it would still be playing because it's a seven and a half minute song. And so um, she just played it over and over and over again. And Rush in their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction speech gave a special shout-out to her because they told her that had she not done that, that Rush's career might have never taken off. That she's the reason why they were able to make a push into America at 18 years old with no previous recording experience. This song is basically just one long build. Oh, yeah. This is um, definitely showing their bluesier uh, roots as well as the one song on the list where we can showcase John Rutsey's drumming a little bit. Yes, for Which sure. is really good throughout yeah, this whole song. Yeah, he is a really good drummer. You could be fooled if you didn't know that maybe it's Neil Peart behind the kit because the fills are very adventurous in this song. Yes. But at the same time, you can kind of feel that, you know, it's it's a definitely a more loose play because yeah, Neil Peart is a very sure. tight drummer. Yeah, I was going to say, you can... The thing about Neil Peart that you can always tell is that everything is right on point. Yeah, where John Rutsey kind of lays things back a little bit, but still, he does an incredible job throughout this whole song. But the real star of this song is Alex Lifeson. For sure, because that guitar solo is incredible. Man, like, again, 18 years old when they recorded this. Like, he was showing that he was going to be the next big guitar player with this song. And... Just, you know, you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself to record a song that has like a three-minute extended guitar solo (laughs) in it when you're 18 years old and you're making your first album. And again, talking about them being 18, them being able to have this incredible transition again with this slowdown and then with this guitar solo and then that big ending, I mean... From a oh, yeah. from a musicianship like side, it's 
just such a great just showcases such a great like maturity almost Mm -hmm. this song really is the one on that first album that shows that they were leaning more towards that progressive style even though this is a really bluesy really jammy song there's just little nuggets in there that show you that this is going to be a prog rock group at some point like yeah that that whole slow down thing at the very end and then he does kind of that that train whistle mm-hmm. bend thing and it slowly gets faster and faster and faster until it just completely explodes it's genius songwriting and um this ended up being the last song that they ever played in their career on their final tour and I got to see them on this final tour which I'm so thankful for they uh, the way that they structured the show was as a reverse retrospective. So they started the show with their songs from their most recent album. And then as they went, they kept moving backwards in their career. Mm. And so the final song of the concert was Working Man, which once I realized that they were doing this, I knew that this was going to be the last song. And I think that it's really cool that they ended their career where they started with the song that made the band. One fun thing that I wanted to highlight before we finish here is this song is pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, earlier we talked about how um, Rush could be considered a metal band. And it's funny, when you hear this song, there is a lot of metal and hard rock influence yeah, in like, this song. Again, the the comparison everyone gave them was to Led Zeppelin, which was, you know, besides Black Sabbath, just about the heaviest band out there at that point. And, you know, I would say the comparisons are very fair. You know, Geddy Lee had the high shrieking voice like Robert Plant did. Mm -hmm. And the guitars were so heavy and just that heavy blues feel to it. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely you can see why they would be considered a, a heavy metal band at that time. Well, there you have it, everyone. That is Rush in a nutshell. Those are the six songs that we've picked them we're gonna take a quick break when we get back we're gonna talk about our bonus song and some final thoughts stay tuned hey everybody welcome back to the good music podcast today we've been talking about rush and as always for you we have a bonus song so this is the song that i picked to represent a more unestablished or well-known band my opportunity to spotlight more unknown songs or maybe bands that were one-hit wonders or bands that were big in the underground but never made it big. So I like to use this time to be able to showcase those songs. And I always like for there to be some kind of connection between the bonus song and the featured artist, whether that be genre or time period or something to do with the history of the band. So this is my chance to be able to give due to some of these songs that perhaps would not make it onto the main part of an episode. And so, of course, Lucas, then this week's bonus song is... Summertime Blues by Blue Cheer. So what's the connection here with Rush? So another power trio. In the mid-2000s, Rush did an album called Feedback where it was a covers-only album. And one of the songs they covered was Summertime Blues. Huh. So it's kind of a double connection. I wanted to get another power trio, but also, yeah, you have the connection of Rush has covered this song before. Just about everybody has covered this song. So this is a pretty heavy song for the 60s. Yes, this is probably this album that this came on, which was Vince Bus Eruptus, which is one of like the most hardcore album (laughs) names ever. Um, A lot of people say that this could be the album that could be argued as maybe the first metal album because it came out a year before Black Sabbath's first record. Wow. So, um, although a lot of other people say, no, it's hard rock, it's, you know, more like Led Zeppelin than Black Sabbath, but if there is an album that could take that title away from Black Sabbath, it would be this album. So, yeah, it is definitely a very heavy song. And again, this is not the band that wrote this song, but this has kind of become the definitive version of the song. What do you mean? So, like, this song is like an old blues standard. Okay. And it's been covered by just about every 
artist that has an interest in the blues. Like everyone's done their own take on it. But this has kind of like been the version that most people say is like the definitive version. I gotcha. Because it was such a revolutionary take. This song really kind of creates a little bit of paradox for me because you have this very poppy, very Beatles-like vocals. Mm-hmm. And then juxtaposed with this very heavy guitar sound. Oh, yeah. Like, that was about the heaviest guitar sound of its day. And then the drumming was also just really aggressive as well. Yes. And you have a very metal-like breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of atmospheric. It's kind of really, like, dark. And it's funny. When you listen to it, you're just like, oh, man. Like, that's what metal bands would do now. Yeah. Like, again, I just, it's the evidence is there that you could argue, I think, successfully that Black Sabbath didn't make the first metal record or metal song that uh, Blue Cheer did it. Um, me personally, I would say it's still closer to the hard rock area, mainly because of the vocals. And again, the lyrics are very, very unmetal. Because yes. it's, just, it's just a love song. <laughs> Which is so funny. Yeah. But, you know. This was this was an incredibly important song for the evolution of metal for sure. And um it's a shame the band never really did anything significant after this album. I know cuz when you listen to the song like and what they did with it, there's so many interesting intricate things that really kind of make you feel like, "Oh man, like this band is really talented." Yeah. Like I had to make sure of this, but when the guitar solo comes on, it gets panned to the left hmm. while the like everything else is still normal. And I had to listen to it twice just to make sure. But it's so funny. Like in the 60s, all of a sudden, like you had a band that was doing that already. And yeah. Well, the Beatles were the ones that really were the ones that experimented with that. Of in course. The mid like 66, 67 with Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. They were the ones that really start experimenting with panning things specifically to the left and the right and and all that. Um, but yeah, they were very, very experimental, very, very influential band. And it's easy to see why a band like Rush would want to cover their music. Well, that's our bonus song. Uh, just to recap, our, uh, our six songs that we did were Tom Sawyer, Free Will, Limelight, Fly By Night, YYZ or YYZ, and Working Man with the bonus song being Summertime Blues by Blue Cheer. Thank you so much for listening to us. Um, please hit the subscribe button. We have new episodes that come out every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. And um, please leave us a review, share, and please also check out the songs that are on the Spotify list. The link for that playlist is in the description. Also in the description is a link to be able to help support this channel. We've got some new stuff coming at the beginning of 2020, so... Um, you won't want to miss out on that. And um, next week, we're going to be moving into the modern era, a band that I had meant to do earlier before uh, I decided to make a last-minute change and do the cars. But we're going to be coming back to this band next week. So please stay tuned for that. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Keep on listening to good music.